Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Content Strategy Podcast. I hope you've all had a fantastic week. It's so great to be back here with you in podcast land over the airwaves or Bluetooth waves or whatever waves you're listening to. I am so excited about today's guest. I'm dizzy with excitement and I'm going to introduce her to you now with zero other preamble. This is Erica Jorgensen, and Erica is a senior content designer and manager at Microsoft who focuses on UX content analytics and optimization. She is a former journalist who's written for global brands like Expedia, nonprofits like Primera Blue Cross, and startups like Amazon, which we're going to hear about, and Rover. She's also taught at the University of Washington graduate program in communication and digital media, and mentors content designers through Hexagon UX. Hi, Erica. Hello, hello. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Where actually you're here, but you're also there. Where are you? I am in Seattle, specifically the Green Lake neighborhood. That sounds beautiful. Well, it green doesn't sound like the best color for a lake, but it, there's green all around it. I know that sounds a little, there's green all around it. And I'm glad I live near a lake because it's going to be hot here, unseasonably hot for Seattle. Now, do, you wimpy, get, wimpy do you in get Seattle. into the lake or on the lake? Or is it just like the breeze coming up off the lake? More paddle boarding. I, <gasps> Great. Yeah, it's actually quite chilly. I don't swim in it all that often, but I think it's nice to have a lake to jog around and to paddleboard around. You know, I don't know if you know this, but Minnesota is the state of 10,000 lakes, which is where I live. And weird colloquialism here is that you can ask somebody, what are you doing this weekend? And they'll say, I'm going up to the lake. And it's, it's just, it's just the way that we say that we're going up north somewhere or down south somewhere to a lake. But when people come to live here, sometimes they'll just like after a month or two, they'll just be like, what? what's the lake? Like, which lake is that? And they think that everybody's going to that same lake. The same lake, but, but it could be true. one of 10,000. It could be one of 10,000. Erica, I have asked you here today because I am super interested to hear about content design and the research practices or practice that you all partner with at Microsoft. So I wonder, let's start off though with you. You have a very interesting bio with a lot of different paths into content design. I wonder if you can talk mm -hmm. a little bit about how did you get here? How did I get here? I got here through journalism. I would say I'd have to go back to ye olden days when I worked as a journalist because those skills, I use them every day as a content strategist, content designer. I like so many journalists, could not support myself or a family on a journalist's salary. So tripped into a startup when I was in my 20s called Amazon and started working there as a book reviewer and author interviewer. I don't know how much detail you want me to get in. Uh, to oh, we'll come that. back to that. You we'll come back to that. that. Those were some, you can those were with some your tricky journey. times. Yeah. yeah. Um, long story short, yeah, I should own my own tropical island. I do not, but I I worked at... Amazon for about close to five years, and then went to Expedia, worked as a content strategist at Expedia. And I think there's just so many parallels between journalism and content strategy, content design, interviewing people, finding out what the real facts are, not the urban myths, but the facts, making sure that you write concisely. There's, there's so much goodness there. And yeah, I think Expedia was where I first worked with the title of content strategist. 
And then you rolled over to Microsoft. And how long have well, you been at Microsoft? Yeah. There were some roles in between there. I've been at Microsoft a little over four years now. And where did you start off at Microsoft? Like when you accepted the job, mm -hmm. what was your title? I was actually in content marketing. So my title was product marketing manager, which at a company the size of Microsoft doesn't really describe my role very accurately, but I was in the global demand center doing content marketing for all Microsoft products, which was, it was, ugh, how do I describe it? It was super fast paced, super stressful, but a really interesting machine they have going there to, to do lead generation for Microsoft products with a ton of content of all sorts, video, eBooks, infographics. We would do all sorts of content to drum up interest in Microsoft products. And that was really four years ago was sort of at the height of the content marketing mm -hmm. place, shall we call it when it was, mm -hmm. I mean, this is a lot of companies still suffer from this malady, but it was really like the more content you can create, surely the better impact it's going to have on our sales. More is not better. No, more no, no. Better. More is not better. No. And we would do analytics to dig in to find out which pieces of content were driving the most impact. And that was really shocking. And I think that's a refrain that I'm singing in my current role because I'm also working on search engine optimization, but less is really more. The more you churn out, the more typos you'll get, the less you seem to engage your audience. It's more is not better, more is more, more content, more problems. So let's talk about that for just a minute because the ethos that I have seen held at so many, especially at the enterprises, but really too, I mean, even our, even the small organization, I think is feeling pressure to like, we've got to have three social media channels. We should be doing a newsletter. We should mm. really be writing blog posts. We should put out a white paper or a PDF. What, what is that? Like where, what is that value? What is that fervor or that panic that That's is panic. driving organizations? Yeah. To like we must create content. What's at the core of that? That's just people throwing spaghetti at the wall. I think hoping that something will stick. I think a lot of that is rooted in the social media ethos of, oh, let's get something to go viral. I would much rather have a content asset, if you want to call it that, a piece of content that will drive engagement with customers over time, almost an evergreen piece of content, instead of something that will go viral for a weekend and then fizzle out like a firework. <sighs> Is that the pattern that you have seen that those are the content assets that really will drive results? No ones that go viral? No. No, no, no. no yeah. No. Right. Or the or the evergreen assets are the ones. No, it's the ones that solve problems. And I think I saw that I was working on content for Microsoft Dynamics 365 for gigantic companies that have super complicated operational problems. They needed software that would solve their many headaches. And if you can talk about that in the content detail, exactly what's in it for them. And that's marketing. That's, you know, I'm talking marketing talk here. If you can emphasize that, that will get their attention and then maybe get them to reach out to you. And then in that role, we would put them in touch with the sales team. So that's so interesting because I am constantly defending the boring content that's largely serves as a utility piece of content, right? Mm -hmm. Like, somebody wants to do something, here is the content that is going to help them do it. Mm -hmm. The person is happy. They move along. They like your brand. They buy your things. You were sitting in marketing. There must have been just like ongoing tension between, no, we want to mm -hmm. tell the brand story. We want to talk about features and as well as benefits. And, you know, how, how did you navigate that conversation? Because I'm friends with a lot of marketers and they're very excited people. They're very excited mm -hmm. about their marketing. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we were fortunate in that we were well-funded and could create the content we wanted to, but I think we had a, a solid relationship with the brand team. I think the director we worked with, Douglas Montague, is a genius. And I think he's, his actually, his mantra ties in a lot with what we're talking about here. His He would often say, simplify to amplify. And he's talking about brand, but it has parallels to content too, in that the less you have, the more you can do with it. And we, I think we did have a really good working relationship with the brand team. And we coordinated with them a lot on things like photo shoots. And when we rolled out the new rebrands of, you know, we got logos and color palettes and things like that. We worked really well together and closely. I think our relationship was solid, but I think we all kind of struggled with, you know, the senior leaders wanted to see impact, impact, impact. And it's it's not about viral. I think it, that team probably is still singing the song of let's let's get in this for the long haul. And the dream would be to create something like an ebook where I had a video series of five videos or seven videos where it can live for 18 months and you can keep promoting it. And then you don't have to worry about it. You can make sure that you're addressing the customer needs and you don't have to be in this frantic hamster wheel mindset of must do more, must create more. I'm curious about how you worked with the brand team, because Mm -hmm. that is an ongoing pain point I see Mm -hmm. specifically with content strategy and content design folks who live in UX, that the brand team wants to tell the story and the content design team wants to help users complete a task. And sometimes the story gets in the way of the task and sometimes pushing to complete the task distills the story. Talk a little bit about what the shared values were between those two teams. I think where we met in the middle was with the voice and tone guidelines, the style guide, the writing style guide that Microsoft has, which is available publicly, by the way. I think we were all focused on the customer because Microsoft's mission is to help everyone in the world achieve more, which is quite lofty, but we we all wanted that. And so I think when we use the right words in our content, pieces, like whether they were eBooks or video or whatever, whatever, that we would be lending to, we would be lending a helping hand. We would be crisp and clean, warm and welcoming, crisp and clear rather. I think we, we were all on the same page that the voice and tone guidelines were awesome and easy to follow and easy to embody with what we were working on, whether the brand team was working on a photo shoot or new icons or a new color palette, or we were working on another content marketing campaign. I think that's something where we could talk the same language, if you will. And really, I don't know. I think I think we could relate to each other really well through that commonality. That is amazing and awesome. <laughs> I love hearing that. <laughs> I'm not kidding. A lot of the work that that we will do at Brain Traffic, I will waltz through the front door and they'll and you know executive leadership will just be like, we all need to learn to work together. But everybody's got, you know, their own metrics that they sort of are precious to them mm-hmm. and that they're chasing. And that is often what we will say is just you all need a North Star that you are all mm-hmm. traveling towards or in this instance principles and guidelines you can feel unified around. Like that's Mm -hmm. great. I will also say everything you just used to describe Microsoft voice and tone, shouldn't those just be everybody's guidelines for voice and tone? They should be crisp and clear. Yes, yes, yes. But I think the uh, willing to lend a helping hand, I think that goes along with our software. You know, it's software is not simple in many cases. And so we, we need to meet our customers with open arms and let them know we're here to help them. Let's shift a little bit and go back to what I was bouncing up and down about when I was introducing you, which is the way that 
content works with research. And I, and I assume we're not just talking about like basic analytics, like, oh, somebody spent 30 seconds on this page, this page must be working or whatever. But that, you know, and the reason that I, I want to dig into this topic a little bit is selfishly is this. So we've had the rise of like design ops over the last several years, as mm -hmm. you know, organizations are embracing design as like a core business function and that it needs to be operationalized. And so that's a thing on the rise. Research ops has sort of been right behind it, right? Like, oh, and research needs to be a thing that is a core business function and not just a nice to have or a thing that we do and revisit every two to three years. Definitely. There's buzz around content ops, which is sort of coming from all the different corners of content strategy world, which is fine. But but really, like in my brain, I'm like, okay, yeah, design and research and content and code. Like those are the mm -hmm. four things that, you know, make make things go. So talk to me then a little. So so I'm really curious, like how are design and research? Actually, let me pull back. Talk to me about how content and research are working together. How are we working together? We are very collaboratively meeting constantly with each other to make good stuff happen. And I think the one thing when I think about user research is it's time consuming and not everyone can do it well. And in that way, it's also very similar to content design in that people think, oh, I can do this, I can do this, let me do this. So I think that as a practice, user research and content design have a lot in common that takes time to do it well. And just because you might be able to do it on your own, you maybe shouldn't do it on your own. <laughs> that said, we've done some really interesting things on our content design team in particular about looking at content research to split out content from the visual design and do testing on the words, the words only. I think that's where we're getting a lot of interesting insights. And that's something that we've done in partnership with our user research team. We have been very mindful to not step on their toes, but we've been using user testing to dig in and say, okay, is this the right word for this spot here? Is this the right word over here? And we're finding all sorts of really magical, magical things are happening. The more our team jumps into doing this user research on content specifically, I think the more impact we're driving and the more energy we're building. And I get excited thinking about the things we're going to uncover we're going to turn over stones or find, I think it's cheesy, but I think of it as the gold at the end of the rainbow. When we do user testing, user testing on content specifically, we're finding some amazing things. And it ties back to the style guide and that how the hell did those words get there in the style guide? Were they ever validated or did they just get chosen by a team one day who said, these are the words that we use for our brand, for our company. We're validating words that are in the style guide. So we're confident they will engage customers and that they will drive business impact. And the brand is listening. They are. They oh. are. I think, yeah, I think that there are so many style guides at Microsoft. It's, there's so many people working oh, yeah. on content. It's great, which is great. It's great to have a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but I think it's really powerful to have the ability to confidently say, this is the right word for this use case. And then we're sharing those results. We have a SharePoint repository that called HITS. I'd actually have to go look up what that stands for, but it's we're sharing all the reports from our research in this. How do I describe it? It's um, it's a searchable database of all the, the research that we're doing, not just content research, but the, the usability research, the visual design, all that is in one spot for people across the company to dive into whenever they're able to, and they can search on content research specifically, which 
was my request for the metadata. So that was a really wonderful thing that we were able to do because the awesome user research team had that SharePoint already. We piggybacked and did a little begging gently and said, please, please, can we join you? And they said, yes, welcome. Okay, I have like 80 questions. Okay, so, <laughs> let, so, let, so let me start. I'm going to start with the question about what you just said, and then I'm going to go back. Okay. How do you get people to use that? Look at that database of research because because that, that's the thing right is that we can put our heart and soul into this research or into the voice and tone guidelines or whatever and then just say you know here here rest of the organization here are the fruits of my labor and if you will look at this and apply this we are all going to be so much better off and our customer will be happier and we'll make more money and then people like so many people don't even know it, it exists how do you how do you promote it how do you help people partake like what, mm -hmm. what do you what are your oh, what are your tricks i think for new hires it's one of the first things we point them to and say by the way you will never be bored because here are several thousand research reports you can read <laughs> it's it's something that we we mentioned to the interns to new hires we say this is the hits database you want you want to go check this out it's something that we we point people to in a monthly newsletter where we summarize some of the golden nuggets of research findings and insights that we found um, I think we also share it out really broadly, not just on our team, but other teams, other partner, other partner organizations or people who I don't even know what team they work on because Microsoft is so big, people can access that. And I think the the research team at Microsoft is is so the research practice, it's so broad. They meet with each other and share their findings. And so it's this, I don't know how to describe it, but it's a wonderful thing that pretty much everyone's aware of. And are they're eager to see what the new insights are and get this handy summary and email. And I, I've had a lot of coworkers who say, oh, we shouldn't send an email newsletter. No one reads this. They sure do. They sure do. And I think this is one newsletter that I know I eagerly look forward to reading because it's got all sorts of customer centric goodies in it for me to use in my daily work. Let me ask you this, and we're just going to trust that these folks maybe aren't checking out the content strategy podcast. Do you have to navigate senior leadership with, who have like pet metrics around usability? Not user pet testing? metrics, but that's an interesting topic that you bring up. And I think if I can. And I shouldn't it. say usability, I should mean, I should say analytics and performance. Analytics. And well, right. I think that's a soapbox I'm happy to get on in, in a constructive way. And let me just explain in that uh, Microsoft has OKRs or objectives and key results, and then KPIs or key performance indicators that map up to those. We have been using Net Promoter Score in our department as a gauge of overall customer engagement. And that is not the most UX-centric, most effective way to measure UX success or content design success. Like, I don't have any sound effects in this podcast, but if I did, I would, brain have, I, would have, I would have pressed the button um, that just went. Argh. Well, I think I know sad trombone or um yes. And that I actually was very, very concerned to hear that when I joined the team, I was like net promoter score. Ooh, but I, I flipped that. I, I reframed that. I said, okay, well, how can we be measuring content design or UX success in a way that senior leadership will understand? Because net promoter score was, across our org, not just for, for our practice. And, you know, I think we've got software development, we've got all sorts of other folks on our feature team, you know, product owners, they, they speak the language of net promoter score. So I actually worked with my manager, Sheila O'Hara, who is amazing, by the way, and who's hiring, by the way. So we worked together to make our own dashboard of UX success measurement. And that's showing where people are getting, of course, we had to use 
get a lot of help from the the data analytics team. I can't say that the data analytics team had to add telemetry or tagging to all of our UX experiences that are on that dashboard, but we can see which at which step in, say you have a five-step customer flow. If someone gets tripped up on step three, we can see it in our funnels. And so we we whipped together a, a dashboard that shows us which which steps are trickiest for our customers, where they're succeeding, where they might need content and or design updates to be more successful. So we don't have everything tagged up in in that dashboard yet because it is very labor intensive to get that happening. But that was one of those ways I was like, don't measure me on it. I don't want to be, I don't want my work measured with net promoter score. I want something more precise. And that is uh, the the UX success dashboard, specifically TCR or task completion rate. I sound like I work at a big company, don't I? Task completion rate. Is yeah, is how we can say very very precisely this is working or this is not. This is awesome. This needs some work. It's it's very empowering, and I think that was another thing that our team was integral in in achieving. Is we said no net promoter score. Mm-mm. And in addition to that dashboard, we're also looking at SUS system usability score and SES system ease score as more granular or more accurate. I don't know. I don't know how to say it without sounding judgy, but. I want my UX measured in a way that I can impact. And then net promoter score, I think Nielsen Norman Group and Jeff Soro, potentially others have said or shown that you can make UX improvements, yet net promoter score declines. And I don't want that to be in my annual review or anything like that. I want a measurement of my work to be accurate and actionable. And I want to know that my hard work is paying off. So... I guarantee there are a lot of people listening right now and their heads are spinning, not only from the acronyms, but also just from all these data points of, is this content working? Are people Mm -hmm. happy with this content? Are Mm -hmm. they getting done what they wanted to do? Mm -hmm. And maybe all they have hooked into their websites are Google Analytics. Are Are there any tools that people could just even start out with that you're a big fan of? Well, I'd say not. Yeah, I, I'm very aware that we are, we have an abundance of resources and riches at Microsoft for us to do that kind of telemetry and that kind of dashboarding. If you have $5, you can do your own usability, content usability research with Starbucks gift cards or things like that. When I worked at Rover, we did not have any budget. We were bootstrapping and we did not have much of anything to go on, but we did have different survey tools that we could use online or just in person that's not feasible yet because of covid but we would grab clipboards the marketing team and me the content team of one at the time we would go downtown in front of whole foods honestly where we where we knew there would be a lot of foot traffic and we'd ask people do you have a dog if so can you talk to me for 5 minutes and i'll give you a gift card and we could get data from that exercise of okay we we gave them quantitative questions and qualitative questions of on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to use an online dog sitting service? Or tell me about how you feel about that. And we would get the quantitative and qualitative results just from asking questions. It just took a little time. That was the investment, but we didn't have usertesting.com, user zoom, anything, anything of that sort, um, call tricks. We didn't have any of that, but we still were able to dig up lots of insights and lots of really valuable information that got incorporated into the web content and the app and the email campaigns and Rover bought their competition. So I don't want to say that content was responsible for their success, but oh, no, definitely, you definitely, definitely had part in it. I think, yeah, they, um, 
they, that was many years ago, but it, it was really helpful to get the voice of the customer into the content development. So it's really incredible that you were able to say, yes, this giant, enormous Goliath organization where I have every resource at my disposal to this tiny organization where I had zero, you know, which is now like a very large organization. Now let's come back around to Amazon. What, Mm -hmm. what's the deal? What happened there? How do you have a story about Amazon as a startup? Uh, there's my barky dog. dog. There's my barky dog. <laughs> he must have come back from his walk. I apologize for him. He is There's spirited. Any... How do they describe him? Spirited. Yeah, CBD isn't working so well for him. We're trying. We're trying lots of things. We're trying lots of things. Um, You've got multi... one. You he's said, in therapy. I read, I my read rescue. He's in therapy. <laughs> well, after the pandemic, we should all be in therapy, right? Well, Especially I think so. and after the pandemic, who who among us has not had a dog right. barking? I, I shouldn't make excuses for him keyboard. and. Since I live near the lake, we get lots of people walking by, walking to the lake. So there's there's that. And let, I'm sorry, let me just say one as well. What kind of a dog do you have? He is, his name is Rufus, and he is a, we believe, a Chihuahua Corgi mix. So I have to say white front, that. white paws, white tip of his tail, little stripe. And he has an exclamation point on the back of his, on, the, on his back in white, his white coloring. He's, you know, Rufus colored. He's reddish brown, but there's a white splotch on his back that's in the shape of an exclamation point. Right. So your question about Amazon was, <laughs> yeah, 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 Amazon, blah, blah, blah. Corgi Chihuahua. Was what, what, what happened to Amazon? The customer no, I know what happened to Amazon. <laughs> Tell me about how did you get to Amazon when they were that startup-y? You know, actually, it it was actually based in, I was working at a creative agency called Landor, which is a division of Young and Rubicam, after having been at the Seattle Times. And I was actually disabled at the Seattle Times. I typed so fast and I did so many interviews with my head crooked. Well, you know, had the phone on my shoulder with my head crooked, fried a nerve in my arm and actually got disabled while reporting at the Seattle Times and took some time off and then worked as an editor at this creative agency. So basically couldn't type as much and went into editing. And funny enough, we were working on office at this creative agency, we were working on Microsoft content. So that's actually my first start into Microsoft land. And I will just tell you, I'm 51 and this was in 1997. This is a long time ago. And I read an article in the newspaper that said, Hey, there's a bookstore opening up, but it's online. And I thought, Hmm, because when I was in college, I worked part-time at Barnes and Noble. And I also worked at Little Brown, the publishing company in Boston. I helped Arthur the Aardvark. I was the manager of the Arthur the Aardvark fan club. Anyway, I could go on and on, but I had a background in book publishing and a background in book selling. And I said, hot damn, I'm going to go get myself a job at this online bookstore. I hope I don't have to type that much. And I was wrong about the typing, but I managed to get the job. Horrifically, they asked for my SAT scores, which were, I, I, I say horrifically because it's just such not an inclusive practice but that they asked for SAT scores. It was a lucky, I think, that I had the right background that they were looking for at the time. And I started as a copy editor. I was the second copy editor hired and then saw this influx of people being hired that summer after I was hired in March of 97, including Andy Jassy, the current CEO, was hired after me, for the record, as was Jason Kylar, who is now uh, semi-famous or pretty famous in the entertainment world. I think they were, yeah, they were hired that summer as Harvard business school students. So yeah, anyway, they grew very, very quickly. It was customer centric, content centric place to work for quite a long time. And I got to say the style guide was very snobby at the start. We wanted people with PhDs who were 
in academia, we, we had a certain audience that we were shooting for, which got shot to hell as the company expanded uh, very quickly. We became more, um, how do I say, less, less snobby with our style guide and got to be a little bit more warmer and less, I don't know, sesquipedalian. There were lots of big words on the homepage back in the nineties, but it's, it was a fun ride while it lasted. I think I never slept under my desk, but I did have a part to play in the development of their style guide, which I'm proud of because I think that did help them get the customer base that they did. And once again, is the custom is a company success based on content? Maybe, maybe they, that went kablooey when they tried to outsource a lot of the content development in when was that 98 or 99? I forget. There's, there's a layoff of most of the editorial team in um, a couple years after I joined, which was not the right way to go, but yeah. So I think they still have lots of pride in how they address their customers with their content. Not like it used to be, but I'd say Susan Benson was my manager there. She, she was an amazing editor really, really talented word nerd who I was happy, happy to work with there. That is really something else. There's a book in there somewhere, isn't there? I, at <laughs> I the very that. least, you're going to be holding court at happy hours for the rest of your life. Well, well, I just, the variety of your background and the scope of what you have experienced and accomplished is just really something else. And, and to me, the fact that sort of the through line to all of that has been your belief in and commitment to the importance of clear, concise, transparent, useful words, language, information, and content mm-hmm. being served up to the right people at the right time in the right place. It's just really cool. I think you're great. Oh, thank you. I think, you know, it's hard to work in content. I give props to everyone working in content because it is, it is tough. It is definitely tough. It is tough. It is great that you are in a place where you are getting the kind of sponsorship and collaboration Mm -hmm. that every content person deserves. I'll ask you this. This will be my final question because this is a question so many of our listeners have. How can one work towards this state of collaboration and being valued that you find yourself in at Microsoft? What are some things that that our listeners can do to sort of help establish and promote and solidify their value within an organization? Mm, I think probably two things come to mind. And I was thinking about this too, after we were talking about brand, working with brand, that we're all working for a company that has goals that you want to make the company succeed. You want job security. You want to make sure that you're serving the customer. So I think there's that business centricity of it that you're all working toward making your customer happy. And so that's a commonality that you can have with your product owners, your visual designers, your your user research team, senior leadership. Everyone's concerned about the customer or should be. And then another is the soft skills. The the working well with others is, is very challenging, especially in tech where everything is boom, 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 fast, fast, fast. But I think taking the time to get to know your coworkers and appreciate what they do is really, really important. And I think that's why our research, content research has done well is that we've always been collaborative with our user research team and let them know I'm concerned for your feelings. I don't want to step on your toes. I want to be collaborative here. How do you think we could make this work? And they've just been wonderful partners. I think because we've been very 
I don't want to say vulnerable is a little dramatic, but we've been very open with them in asking, asking for help and saying, we want to do this on our own. How can, how can we do, how can we do this research while collaborating with you and making sure that we're all, we're all in it together. So I think there's soft skills and content can't be, they cannot be underestimated. And I think that goes too with internally on your team when providing feedback to be gentle and to think, you know, be constructive and not harsh. I can still remember some of the feedback I got in some of my writing at Amazon in 1997. I still remember <laughs> it because it's sticking in my head that it, if it, if it's not framed in a constructive way, it, it can be heartbreaking and content is hard enough anyway. So support each other, support your team and support your business. Erica, you're going to be joining us at Button, the mm-hmm. content design conference mm-hmm. in October. I'm yes. really looking forward to your talk. It's called, Are Your Words Working? Creating and Sustaining a Content-Focused Research Practice. I'm not going mm-hmm. to lie. When this talk came across my desk, I jumped up and down a little bit and pumped my fist in the air. I was really excited. So congratulations for, for being selected. And thank you in advance for participating. If people are interested in coming to hear Erica, you can go to buttonconf.com and learn all about our exciting virtual conference. Erica, thank you one million times for joining me today. Thank you, you so much. Fantastic. Uh, where can people find you online? I am on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter at Jorgensen Erica because someone took Erica Jorgensen. She lives in Canada. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not bitter. Yes, I know. Rude. So yes, Jorgensen Erica on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn. I could probably, yeah, you can erjo at microsoft.com is my email if you want to reach out to me. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Erica. Mm -hmm. Thank you.